it's like popular psychology as well yeah people where, are kind of not writing books anymore they're just doing it in other ways and I, I do think it's a missed opportunity for some people because it is still a great medium for imparting knowledge in a packaged way yeah but i think that the internet has almost uh, diminished it slightly because it's like popular psychology there are things that i watch on youtube and are by these sort of what you might call like influence or whatever and they think they're saying something that they have found truth in but really it's just like they've um, appropriated a uh, popular psychology idea um, from a, a textbook <laughs> mm. and presented it as their own and then everyone's like oh wow you know so insightful and they're never going to say well actually I just pulled it from this textbook and you should read this textbook no they they want but of course the the, the medium as you would say is the message um, that maybe it just reaches more people in that more uh, accessible way which is good but I'm very much about, can we get to the heart of it? What, what are the, the things that I can learn in the best way possible and then interpret it rather than this sort of weird repackaging of things? But I suppose that's how things go forward. It's iterative. I think, uh, I think it's really interesting what you just said about when, when I tweet, it's kind of very uh, businessy or, or very marketing-focused because t- Twitter is kind of this... You've, you've all, you almost automatically automatically when so I, I tweet like 10 times a day every single day I, I say I'm going to tweet 10 times a day so you through iteration just develop this voice that keeps getting narrower and narrower and narrower that you've got that you almost I don't even think about it now you just kind of you just type it and you you kind of know what resonates with people and, and you know what people don't like and and you kind of become known for this particular viewpoint, and then you just keep repeating it over and over. And a, a lot of a lot of I was I was having this conversation with somebody the other day who was just getting into Twitter, and they were saying, "Why does everybody on Twitter command things? Why <laughs> why does everybody say you've got to do you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've you know you, you blah 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 blah?" And it isn't it isn't because and I do it too. I'm guilty of it. But it isn't that I'm commanding people to do what I'm saying. It's that you have 280 characters. So almost there's no room for nuance whatsoever. You have to get to the point immediately. So we're we're having this conversation now and I can say something and then continue the conversation and, and, and tell you why I believe it and why other people might not and I can back everything up that I'm saying. But on Twitter you're instant and you've got to say say it in 280 characters or people just don't get it and be and th- this is the perfect example of of the medium shaping the message it is you have, you've got to be commanding and any nuance in your message any even words like well i kind of believe this or I, I think you should kind of do this people just gloss straight over it because it, it, it's just the way that people consume tweets you just re- you're reading through this timeline of 280 characters, and uh, you've got to talk like that. It, it, it's really it's really weird, and people see that as the thing. They see my tweets and they think that that's what I'm like, but it's not. It's just the Twitter. It's just the Twitter way of saying things. It, it's really weird. 
I think that's really interesting because that reminded me of I was listening to a podcast and um, the guy said that he would I think someone a friend of his uh, pulled him up for for not saying I think so a lot of people say um, I think this and he doesn't say I think this he would just say this is yeah what I want to say and assumes that everybody is 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 understanding that as that's what he thinks. And so I think he's like two characters, uh, like um, <laughs> I have to count the number of words, uh, characters, like six characters or whatever, um, is, is valuable space in the Twitter sphere. And you would assume that, it, 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 um, that what you say is what you think, but it can seem very rude and immediate that you're not saying that, like you're telling people um, that's what you should believe rather than saying, so I think is almost a precursor way saying it's, it's almost like passive or it's a thing that softens what you're about to say is that I'm about to share some information with you. This is uh, for you to consider, but I'm not telling you this is how you need to think. And it's, it's just small details like that you start to notice. And I try to stop saying, I think, um, because I say it a lot and I feel like it's always a way of me trying to not seem aggressive or dogmatic. Um, I like the economy of words rather than, um, yeah. I, I know what you mean. And, and Twitter writing 10 tweets a day since February has made me very economical with what, with what I'm saying. And it, and it's the it's the only medium where I command like that. Everything else that I do, when I'm writing or when I'm uh, doing a podcast or something like that, I'm I'm very, I'm I, I almost I almost over over say this is not how it is for everybody. This is just what I think. But with it, I'd be curious to know um, that I I. Um, I run a few different Twitter accounts, right? And and they're very easy to run BP and own logo archive because I'm sharing other people's work. I'm not really uh, caught with a, a personal opinion and people react to that and share it and whatever. Uh, but I have my personal account and I find that I retweet things from BP and own logo archive uh, to keep it alive. But I fluctuated around the 7,800 mark and I can't seem to accumulate um, more followers. The only time that I accumulate more followers is when I have an opinion about yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. And I, I find that really fascinating, but also uh, scary because I'm, I, I, I like, I can't, Twitter is a problematic platform for me because uh, it can catch you off guard where something triggers you, you write something quickly, you share it out into the world, and then you may fuck yourself. Um, because you haven't taken the time to construct it and think through the idea. Um, and that's why I very rarely publish things because I, am, I can get caught by the, the, uh, like an immediate response where I think it can belie what I believe is someone that takes the time to think about something. I can be triggered like anybody else. And, um, and, and it's, it's a bit frustrating because I don't really want to get caught in the um, the platform of oversimplifying things or so what I wanted to ask you was that 
Um, when I look at your stream, I see a lot of engagement uh, on the things that you say. But also, uh, from a personal point of view, I find that the way that you deliver it, uh, it's an instinct inside me, seems very abrupt. And I know you, having spoken to you over this podcast, I know that you're a thoughtful individual with ideas that you want to share. But there's something inside me that when I see the tweet, I think, ooh, you know, that seems very dogmatic. Um, you're telling people how they should think about things. But uh, only because I know you, I understand what the point is. Uh, but if I didn't have that context, I would just find you um, abrasive. Um, Not bad. <laughs> and that it's just it's just and that that comes from me not from you that uh, i am projecting a, a particular upbringing and an understanding and way of writing that uh is it's like i don't like to be told anything <laughs> i like to be guided into into understanding things and that's the uh are you purposely there's, there's a line between provocation and an invitation. So the invitation is, this is what I think. What do you guys think? And this is Twitter, right? Or uh, YouTube where it's like, they always introduce like a, a question as an invitation to basically create content under their YouTube video, right? Where you say the question, but you don't get involved in the question. You just assume that you just leave everybody else to have that conversation to boost your view count up you're not necessarily involved in that and then there's provocation where you say things on twitter as you do that triggers people into having that immediate response right there's uh, perhaps a little bit of exploitation in there but that's in the same way youtube works where the question is often uh, to me infantile sometimes where it's like uh what's your favorite I've designed four logos, which one's your favorite? Well, for me, it's like, well, it's not for the community to decide, it's for you to have a conversation with your client. And so you know that they know that, but they know that they have to say that in order to generate uh, interaction around that. And then they, and then they call that community. Um, because someone's having a conversation, or 10 people are having a conversation on your YouTube videos, or every video has 10 people. And then you say, I now am responsible for a community. And I, I think it's, it's I, I don't know whether that's a community or not. So I'll throw it back to you. Are you purposely being provocative? Uh, in one word, yes. So there's, you're, you're like me. You, you're a, a contrarian and a, rebelli a rebellious personality at heart. You don't like people telling you what to do and it, it kind of rankles you when somebody does tell you what to do and you kind of don't want to follow them. And you, you're exactly like me. But there's there's a couple of things going off with Twitter. So first of all, like the 280 characters thing, you've got 280 characters to get a reaction out of somebody. And there's various different tactics you can use to get reactions out of somebody. You can ask them a question in the YouTube fashion. Ask them a question, and uh, but the question is usually provocative. It's it's usually a viewpoint that you either don't believe in, or you know it's gonna it's you know it's gonna get people going. So the question is like that. You're provoking them through a question. The other way to provoke somebody is to just say something that's gonna trigger them, and. The, and 
the part of the reason for doing that is to get them to pull to pull them into your idea of thinking your way of thinking so if i say and i tweeted this earlier because i'm looking at my twitter now because i was looking for an example i tweeted this earlier i just tweeted you're never ready that was it i just tweeted you're never ready and (laughs) that that kind of tweet annoys somebody to unfollow you or further pulls them into your way of thinking that tweet that i wrote isn't really what i think it's just a it's just a piece of content that's on Twitter. So if you think of Twitter as kind of uh, like a blog almost, or a stream of, of, of interesting content, when you write something on Twitter, you're using lots of different tactics, and it isn't necessarily something that you're saying. It's just a piece of content that you're putting out. Some people don't understand this as deeply as other one, other people, so me saying this is kind of over-intellectualizing it a little bit. But for the people who do get triggered by it and unfollow me, they're not the kind of people that I want to connect with because I genuinely do believe that. I don't believe that you're ever ready to start something, and we've spoke about this before. You're never ready to start something and you you, you kind of just need to eventually get over the step and just start it and put the fears to the side. And there's lots of different things behind that. There's lots of further points to say. But the initial shot over the bow is you're never ready. And that tweet will because the way twitter works someone might retweet that and add a further comment to it or someone might reply to it with another further idea and this happens all the time on twitter this is primarily how twitter works you will put a point out someone will reply to it with a further point and you get into a conversation with them so the initial tweet that you're putting out those particular kind of tweets that i put out are kind of a a starting point for a conversation and and the more provocative they are the better and you, and you always intend to participate in that. It's not purposely just being provocative and letting other people generate, uh, what, you know, like um, value in in terms of what Twitter thinks the value is in order to further its reach. It's a genuine intention to have a conversation about things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's been times where I've said something and people have gone, I think that's wrong, Craig. What you've said there is not right. And they have a conversation with them and you leave the conversation public because it adds value to other people. They see you replying to it and you spark an interesting conversation. So there is some times where I'll actually ask a question. I've got um, a question going out later on today. Something about um, how do you stay consistent with a project? You, you know, a lot of us struggle to, to keep with a project over a long term. How do you keep that enthusiasm going? I'm really interested for answers. So that is a question that I'm asking uh, later on about that. But a, a lot of the, the provocation stuff is um, just to poke people sometimes, to poke people into life to actually see if they're actually engaging in my content or to get them to stop engaging with my content and unfollow me. So, And sometimes the ideas are just a test. They're just testing the ideas. And I'll delete some of the tweets sometimes if they're a little bit too provocative or, like you said, I've written it in a rush and it doesn't it doesn't make sense or it makes me look like a dick or beyond or beyond a dick where I'm willing to be dick like um if it goes too far I'll delete it but what 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 I tend to when I tweet stuff like this what people tend to tweet me back is either puns or stupid points of view and then it'll end up descending into madness so a lot of people who do follow me know that I'm not being serious with it that it's just kind of you're playing the twitter game it's it's just the way that Twitter is. Do you um, 
one is um are you always prepared to change your mind having read the conversation and heard other people's opinions yeah absolutely fantastic and um are you enjoying it yeah that, that's, that's primarily why i do it when when i tweet something like that there's loads of times where people when i've tweeted something i don't fully understand the whole story and i've tweeted it and someone comes back to me and and, and says this probably isn't right or they give me another point of view uh, and i'm always i'm always interested in that extra conversation that's how primarily i use twitter i read um a while ago at somebody i follow on twitter called ed latimore he mainly kind of tweets philosophy and stoicism and things like that he's a huge account now uh, 100,000 followers and w- one of his tactics is to tweet something that's provocative and then engage with the comments afterwards and that's what, what I'm trying to do another thing I tweeted today was about Picasso and I tweeted about um, it, it's an image of him basically at 15 years old it's three self-portraits one of the images is at 15 years old the next one is at 25 years old and the third one is at 89 years old and the difference in styles between all three of those photos are really interesting and and I said in the tweet and I'm looking at it now I said he decided to continue experimenting and that's how he got to the final point and then some people who replied to me said well do you do you think it was experimenting or do you think it was just his life experiences that changed his art you know we we get our styles changed over time when our experiences change in life and i kind of agreed with him i said yeah i think you're probably right he probably wasn't purposefully experimenting he was probably just experiment he was probably just doing his art as he normally does like everybody else his life experiences changed or his circumstances changed and ultimately his art changed but the truth of the the point is that i don't know i don't know what the answer is but the engagement with that is the, the thing that's most the most important. I use Twitter to connect with people, to talk to people, to to look into people's minds and 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 share their ideas and experiment with their ideas. And Twitter's really powerful for that when you use it like that. Some of the other accounts who tweet uh, platitudes and inspirational things and stuff like that never do the engagement. It's a one way street. It's just broadcast, 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 and that's that's not what I'm like at all plus with with my twitter as well you do see the other things in there you see me uh, you see my videos and you see my podcast and you can see that that's not really what i'm like but some other people aren't necessarily like that ultimately twitter i treat it as kind of uh, just a conversation with people it's really powerful like that i follow way more intelligent people than me and it's interesting to see their points of view and when they come back to me on things that i've said and it just it just changes your perspective on a lot of things. It's it's really powerful to use it like that. I was wondering whether you wanted to do a topic that we always seem to return to social media. Um, <laughs> did you have any topics in mind? I, I was thinking we could do something on ideas. Um, how do we come up with ideas? Uh, think, as a yeah. as a practical, that's the job. That is essentially what we have to do as designers is to come up with ideas. Um, yeah, that's a great and- topic. I've uh, I've also got um, another one to kind of add to it because this week I've I've mainly been working on a new branding project with with a client, uh, and the reason this branding project came about 
bearing in mind they've just rebranded six months ago. Uh, they've just rebranded six months ago and I came in to, well, Genius Division came in to work on their website, so they wanted a new website. And it became apparent as we started to do the new website that the branding wasn't right. It, it just wasn't fitting. It, you know you know what it's like. If, in fact, do you, do you design websites? I guess you no, I don't. But I started no. to uh, think about Webflow to broaden my offering. Yeah, it's, it's it's like anything though. You know, when you start designing something, even a magazine or a piece of print or whatever, the logo's not right, and it's really, really difficult to design something when the logo's not right. The logo just it didn't fit the market. It it didn't it it looked professional, but it wasn't great. And I we had I had to kind of have the conversation with them. I don't think your logo's right. And that's when I found out it was only six months old. Um, but the reason I had the conversation with them is because they came to me. They said, we're not so sure about our new logo. Could you just have a look at it and and, and see what you think? Um, I think that's an interesting conversation to have as well, having those kind of conversations with clients, uh, uncomfortable conversations with clients, and how to actually convince them that what they've got isn't right when there there's this kind of back not backlash but there's resistance against your your points of view i think that's a that's a good topic i had a, a recent experience that could fold into that um as you know a lot of what i do is related to to logo design and by extension corporate identity and um i i do think that um, th- there is the subjectivity of what a good logo is. And I don't want to overemphasize logo as this silver bullet or this, um, I-, I think this the conversation around logo design, this good or bad, it, it, is, it lacks nuance, right? But it becomes this central point in which... Um, uh, there are a lot of, it's the entry point for a lot of young designers uh, into, say, freelance services. It is a thing that crops up on publications in magazines, logo design tips, and blogs. It's quite an easy thing to write about. But it's not something, if, if, if your entire business is based around logo design, you're not ever going to, or you may in some time, but not quickly, ever going to say to yourself, um, what I do as a logo-only designer isn't actually providing my client with substantial uh, frameworks in which to communicate with clients in the future. Um, they get caught up in logo design craft um, because it, it's, it's a bit easier to understand and it's actually an enjoyable process. Um, but to have a conversation with a client that is solely around a logo for me is problematic. Um, I do take on logo only projects, but I, I do find it a very difficult conversation to have with clients uh, because I can't say this is what you absolutely need because it isn't. What they really need is a bit of strategy, right? Um, uh, it's, it's harder to sell in the more expensive website or copywriting or art direction. Um, so... I think I'm going to hand that over to you and say perhaps you can lead the way in terms of uh, your experience with the client and how you understand 
logo design and I can jump off from there. Um, how, how you felt the logo wasn't serving them uh, and I'll perhaps I'll jump in with what I understand I believe a good logo to be within the context of it being an isolated asset and then maybe we can go on to um, corporate identity. Yeah, well, the um, the strategy stuff was part of it. So the as I said, we were doing the website, and the original the original proposal that we put together for them was that we was going to keep the logo because I thought it was okay, it was serviceable. We were going to keep the current logo and just make some brand guidelines around it and actually tell them how to use it because they they'd only had a logo made in the past. So they had the new logo that got made six months ago, but it was it was just a logo and there was nothing else. So we we said to them, "We'll we'll work with what you've got, and we'll as we're doing the website, so we'll use the website as kind of a way to build the brand guidelines. We'll say this is the fonts you're going to use, this is the colors, etc." And as we moved into the the web stuff, they started to doubt the logo. So it came, it came from the client initially, and that was because we were asking questions around, well, I was asking questions around the logo. I was asking things like, um, how because they've got two brands, so I was asking to them, how does this logo fit in with the other brand? And they said it didn't. And then I said, well, what, what was the reason for changing your logo to this? I was just, just poking, I was just asking them questions to try and understand the reasons and the, the kind of why they'd done the logo, why they'd changed. And so after asking these questions, they went away and they, and they rang me and said, I, actually, after you've asked these questions, I'm not too sure about this logo. We've had another think about it. And I said to them, okay, well, I'll have a look at it with more of a critical head and I'll see if I can come up with whether the, I think the logo is okay. So at this point in time, I had to look at the logo and say whether it was good enough or not. So previous to that, I'd accepted it, and then they had asked me to look at it, so I went away and looked at it. And then I I looked at it in a purely objective point of view. So the first thing I looked at was technical aspects of the logo. Does the logo technically work? Is it okay at a, a large size? Is it okay at a small size? And the answer from that when I looked at it was that it wasn't the way that it was made up and the way that it was designed, it wouldn't work well on a business card and it wouldn't work well on a billboard. So it kind of sat in this uncomfortable place where the logo very rarely looked good, technically, as you looked at it as a piece. So that was the first point, tick. Technically, it didn't work. I knew I could explain that to the client. And then I, I looked at the industry. So I looked at their logo sat inside the industry. I looked at the other ones, uh, the other companies that were in their industry and learned pretty quickly that that logo just didn't match anything else that existed in the industry, which isn't always a bad thing. That's okay. So I, I tentatively wrote down that it didn't match the industry. You, you see you kind of what people expect your logo to look like from the industry. It, it isn't there. It, it, it sits outside of the industry. I put that. I, I would, I, I would actually jump in and argue with that, that I, I, uh, I agree with you. So the first one is usefulness. Uh, is it functional? Can it does it work in those con- in the context it needs to work in? And and I would say to the designers is 
that that would fold in with the the notion of does it scale i don't really like that that notion it's it's received wisdom it's it's from the past what what is is it appropriate for its contexts in which the client is likely to use it so uh if they're not going to use it as an app icon ever or is it going is it ever going to be signage or these kind of things so is it appropriate for context and then we move on to uh for me it's is it distinctive within the market and i my belief is actually it doesn't need to reflect anything within the market um in fact the more it doesn't the more useful i feel it becomes and that's a there is over time i believe a designer will accumulate a particular point of view of what is good and what is bad and that's a purely subjective thing and but you need to be able to go into a client meeting and provide that understanding um and so although we differ in that aspect of things that we've both come to a point of view from experience that is both valuable and so i don't think that we would necessarily need to go in and have a, an argument about who's right or who's wrong only that we both come to our individual points of view and i think that's really really good is that you can confidently say um the logo does not reflect aspects of the industry and i believe that's an important point of view yeah the 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 final was this the final point let me have a think a second yeah i think this was the final point the final one we came to was as part of the initial work and we always do this on websites as well it's a bit of a weird one for websites but it's something i've been doing fairly recently when we're making a design brief i don't just talk about the aesthetics of it in fact i very rarely talk about the aesthetics i talk about the kind of um what's the best way to put this the, the, the way that it wants to be perceived so I, I use a lot of words so I, I've got a big list of words and I say does it want to look established does it want to look young does it want etc etc those kind of things so I, I say to them what is your client's world view so what 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 does the client believe in rather than what what is the age of the client or where do they live and things like that because actually I do, don't... do you mean uh, the, the demographic yeah. What do you mean the client? Uh, the demographic. So, well, kind of kind of two bits. So I first go through it with the client. So I ask them, do you want to look established? Do you want to look young? Do you want to look experienced, etc.? Then the second part of the, the kind of the design brief process is I ask them what their client looks like in terms of a worldview rather than um, asking them what age they are or where they live because I, I find it more useful. I think it's called psychographics or something like that. Um it's a tip I got off Seth, Seth Gordon, and I, I think it's much more valuable. So after I go through those things, this was the final point that I came to them. They wanted to look established. They're a 45-year-old company, and the current logo that they had didn't look established. It looked very, very young. So they were. it made them look instantly when you looked at it. And this isn't really an objective view. This is my experience and looking at the logo and thinking, hmm, you, you look a bit young. So the logo looked really young. It looked like it was for a young company that had just started up. And this was a problem because they wanted to show their experience and their established, they'd been around for 45 years. And we didn't necessarily want to just put 
being around for 45 years in the logo because that's a bit naff. So the logo had to look like it had uh, quite a long time. Uh, looked, It needed to look established. It needed to be a Werther's Original type thing where it, even though Werther's Originals is not that old, you think it is old. So we wanted to make them look established. And that was the final point that I went over with them that the logo, in my experience, doesn't look established. If we put it against the other people in your industry and if we look at other industries who are look established your logo doesn't look established i think you're talking about semiotics right yeah yeah um so that was that was the point that i was the most worried about presenting to them because that is purely my uh, opinion really uh, opinion and experience but the obviously the, the hiring a designer so they they value my opinion and what i'd seen you look at bank logos or anything that's established and needs to be trusted that's where we wanted to be at we want to be more like uh, a bank or a really established company rather than a young and hip company that it, it came down to that i thought the logo looked trendy to be honest and I, I don't i didn't think that trendy was was the right way that they needed to look that that was the most difficult point to sell them on but they did buy it so that that's a really tough one. How do you how do you go with to your client where you've kind of got this opinion that's very difficult to explain to somebody who doesn't have your experience? And how do you explain that objectively uh, and get them to believe in it? I think one of the important things is um, that there's a point where you transition from um, a like um, from learning. And like a journeyman, right, where you're acquiring a lot of insight and reading a lot and engaging a lot in visual culture and critical discourse and establishing a point of view, um, uh, like a, a design philosophy or whatever. And then believing that enough, but knowing that you're going to change that philosophy over time, but believing in it enough at the time to uh, get a client behind them because they clients ultimately sign off the work is all you can do is provide them with with the insight that you have and they know that you've done x y and z and you've had this much experience but ultimately you provide them with what you believe is the best solution for, for the for the job um, but there's also a point where you've perhaps been doing it for 50 years where you can't necessarily objectively describe something where uh, you have an instinct because of a lived experience that is paired with a objective understanding of semiotics and the way people understand things. Um, and I, I always think that the, there are certain designers in the world that have been around for quite some time where instinct is a valid point that they've reached but for everybody else um you need to be grounded in some kind of of, of um pragmatism uh, the question then comes over to like that notion of commercial art where you have your understanding uh but then that's paired with the what you might call a form of art or um, design craft where you need to produce something that didn't exist before that now exists and is it's a, 
uh, it's a derivative of everything that has come before, and that being your your learning and all the things that you've you've seen and all the form making that you've seen. Um, and there's a point where you just have to commit to it and say, "This is what I believe in, and this is why you should believe in what I believe in." Um, but know that you will have a different belief in the future, and that you will work towards having um, developed that belief over time. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I remember if I think back twelve years, and I'm, I've presented the first logo to the client I've done twelve years ago. I would have just slapped it on a piece of paper and said, "Here you go. This is what this is your new logo. What do you think?" Now, fifteen years later, I feel like I have to convince the client way more than I would have had to have done twelve years ago. It's it's like completely backwards. Now now I should be able to just put put it on a paper and say, "Here you go. This is fifteen years' experience. There you go. Done." But now I have to. I feel like I've got to explain it more to them. I think that's a wonderful thing, right? Um, the the naivety of um, your beginning as a, a design practitioner. I use the term design practitioner as year one super loosely because I'm not entirely sure whether I was a design practitioner in those early days. Oh, but man, it was, I was very so bad. I was so bad when I started. Instinct where I had no right to be using instinct. Um, but that's how you find your feet and... and um, and and that, that's kind of how you, how I survived as a as a freelancer. And I think you're right. Is the when I'm writing up the work, which I never inevitably inevitably can't even say it that I have to do for the client. Um, because I will speak to them, but I typically write my ideas up because that's just the the, the mo for me. Um, is that in writing about it often helps me discount a particular idea um, and let's just say we're talking about logos or whatever is that I'm think that the the writing it up helps me just make sense of what I've done so if I feel like I've gone and used a bit of instinct in the work I like to break down where that instinct has come from where the ideas may have come from what I'm referring to um, and it's as you said when you're trying to explain it to a client you're actually almost explaining it to yourself right that justifying you, it to yourself yeah okay so perhaps there is a i remember um i think it was someone someone in well known within a design studio in in san francisco and then and they said like post-rationalization was just part of the job, right? And the way I rationalized the post-rationalization is that for a lot of designers that have been designing for a while, and I'm thinking like 15 years plus, uh, just put us in that bracket, uh, that the post-rationalized process is really just making sense of instinct, is that we've seen a lot of things um i've written a lot of things and then i've applied that in a form of instinct into a piece of logo design job that when i'm looking through the work i'm actually saying oh, okay yeah that's where i got that from and that's why that makes sense within this context it's just a 
moment to take a pause and to think constructively about something that often comes out quite quickly. And it's to, some designers may describe it as like a, like magic, right? That, that the logo just suddenly came out on the sketchbook and they're just so surprised. It's like they were, uh, but really everything comes from somewhere. It's just, they're not capable of, uh, articulating where that came from and why it's relevant. Um, and I think that's really important for a client is that it's, there is no magic. And we've talked about it before with the, the logo grids is almost like a way to avoid that uh, rationalized process where instead of having a conversation about all of the things that you've drawn on to manifest uh, the client's um, strategy or positioning in, in a form and a, a visual identity system, they've just gone for the technical aspect of saying, well, look how beautifully crafted this is. Um, which I, the craft does play its part, of course, um, because that's, that's the, the useful component of what we're talking about is, is, is it appropriate for the various different uh, applications? And if you want to apply some kind of grid to it or whatever, to just make sure all your, I don't know, your margins are fine or whatever, that's fine. But it's all, it's, it's a, it's an, it's a way of selling in that is, that skips uh, that capacity to be able to explain why the thing is the way it is. I think that's a, that's a really good point, actually, about the rationalization, because there is logos that you've made that come in instantly, that took you two minutes to come up with the idea, and then you, you, you might spend a couple of hours refining it or whatever. And for me, sometimes there's a little bit of guilt behind that. There's thing, the, I think, well, I, I came up with, with this so quickly, and if that's the first idea that I came up with, I'll spend sometimes a couple of days trying other ideas and then you return to the original idea because there's a little for me it's a little bit of guilt you feel like oh god i did that so fast maybe i should charge them less but you the the kind of the relax put my teeth back in the rationalization comes to explain how you've got to that idea so quickly um and and in truth you haven't got to the idea really quickly have you it's took it's took you 15 years there's you know, the old thing about selling it for its 50 years of experience or whatever, uh, and it took me five minutes to do it, and it still costs 15 grand. And I've butchered that quote there, but you know what I mean? Um, I think that's 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 the point, right, is that it didn't take you five minutes. It, it took you 15 years. And also, it's not it's not just the, 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 the skill set, but it's the capacity to recognise... Uh, when you've done something that is uh, appropriate, um, that and 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 to leave it as is. But if we went back to the title of the podcast, that's a job. Is that as you said, that you need to spend a few days making sure that you've taken the time to explore many different options even if it is just to give further credibility to that first uh, section um that that first idea 
And I think that's that's really important is that knowing that you've done a good job and part of that is spending time thinking about it. Um, you see a lot of these, um, you know, napkin drawings, you know, they just came up with it or whatever really quickly. Um, and of course, a lot of the time, it's how you sell something in, right? Um, the client still needs to sign it off. And it's up to you whether you feel like you've done enough exploration and you've done enough research that, that warrants, um, that, that, that you feel is credible. And I think it, it just keeps on coming back to credibility, right? Is that if you think it functions and fulfills the brief and, and will work out in the world, then you've done your job. Um, it's up to the client to um, fill that symbol with meaning. Um, I don't think that designers should get too concerned with uh, being dogmatic in terms of meaning making, telling people what the logo is, what the service is. And this is what a would term as um, uh, meaning making or uh, uh, ambiguity as a way to sharpen perception or it's an invitation to project meaning onto something so rather than telling people what it is they should understand from it that there's enough space in which they can fill it with meaning and that also in terms of um, a brand how people experience the brand is that you just give them enough room to say this is my experience with the product or service and that the logo doesn't subvert that in any way that I can just fill that that logo with, with that meaning. And I think that's really important in terms of understanding that every individual has their own lived experience. You can never know uh, how they will understand that particular form. And I, I, I think I tweeted about it the other day is you may design a symbol to be a dog. But if somebody else sees that as a cat, it doesn't really matter, right? It's as long as they have a relationship with it, that is more important than, than sort of being overly uh, literal or, or sort of forcing a particular point of view. And that's where things like Apple and uh, the Nike swoosh work so well is that they are consistent symbols, but the association and meaning is always in flux and is an invitation in which you, it's an invitation to people to project their own meaning onto it, right? What it means for them. And uh, the, there are so many different sort of cultural aspects to that, that uh, Nike, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's, that's why it's beautiful, right? It's, it's not the form that I think that is beautiful. I think it's everything that it has come to mean over time. And that doesn't mean that that can't be completely undermined by a brand tone deafness at critical points in time where culture shifts and they put their foot wrong. Um, that Nike swoosh can mean anything in the future. Uh, that's its strength and but also can be uh, a difficult and, and you know like um, corporate missteps uh, can survive that that's not the designer's responsibility I think it comes with confidence as a designer as well that 
you can actually explain to the the client that ultimately this can mean whatever you want. What it means today is not what it's going to mean in a year's time. If you keep it for longer than five minutes, it's going to mean a different thing every single year that you have it, and that's not a bad thing. That's just the way that brands develop. I always think the the most potent example of this, of changing a symbol to mean something completely different, and in this instance, it's changing a symbol to mean something really positive, to change it to mean something really negative, is uh, the old peace symbol, so the swastika. So the, the, the swastika symbol uh, came to represent Nazism, uh, a terrible thing, a terrible thing. You can't look at that logo and think it's a good thing. But the original symbol is just a swastika that's that's turned the other way around. That was the original peace symbol that meant peace for a very long time. And the whoever was in in charge of this kind of stuff in, in the Nazis simply reversed the symbol and made it mean something horrific. And that's just a, a pure example of taking one symbol and applying a different meaning to it. And the symbol, now you look at it, even the symbol is, is or even the colours, the black and the red, you often see it in films, don't you, when it's they're, they're presenting a, a, bad, a, a bad group of people or the enemy or whatever. They might not use the swastika, but they'll use the red and the black, and it's, it's come to mean something over time that's horrific. And that's the perfect example of a symbol going from a positive meaning to a negative one. And you, you, that's the confidence of a, a symbol, that it, a symbol can mean whatever you want it to mean. It's just that the brand that you attach around it and everything else as well, the marketing and the PR and, and all that kind of thing. Like you said, missteps, PR missteps, it can make it can make a logo mean something completely different. Ultimately, what the, the just the logo by itself is, when somebody looks at it, what does it make you feel? And that can be a positive and a negative for some people. At the same time as well, can't it? It can mean, for for one group of people, it can mean a positive thing. For one, for another group of people, it can mean a very negative thing. If you look at, uh, you look at the label logo, for example, some people will look at the label logo and think it means something very positive. Some people will look at the label logo and think it's something terrible. And that's purely their, their own meaning that they've attached to it over time. Mm. And I think that sort of foundational component is continuity, right, is that um, things have developed uh, quite a lot since the mid-century, since that early corporate identity program of uh, colour, type and symbol stamped on everything. Now it's become such a rich and multifaceted experience that the I would argue that the value of the, the logo and this is where sort of your design philosophy comes in. Some people will agree, some people will disagree, is that the logo has its value within a, a program and visual identity uh, and verbal identity has been diminished. That you should be able to understand what brand is, um, perhaps just in a tweet, uh, in, the, in the language, in the tone, or um, just in a combination of color and typography. I think that's really exciting space for designers to play in, and particularly with technology. Technology is the great catalyst for design to change, right? Where something was one thing, now it's, it's, it becomes something else, and it's really exciting. And things like smell, when you walk past a shop, and you know exactly what shop you've walked by. Um, and I think that's a, a really great space to work in. It's quite hard to transition to go into design as a logo only designer. I know that you have a lot of these people on Fiverr um, that 
that that is their their their, their, their uh, core business and they may just sit in that sort of space uh, comfortably uh, for me it's it's far more exciting to explore how you can communicate with people and different groups of people using different techniques and and uh, I think sometimes it can be difficult for a logo designer to transition into corporate identity. I wonder whether maybe you could offer some advice for those people that entered into the world of corporate identity design via uh, self-taught logo design practice. Perhaps they learned about it on Skillshare. There's a lot of um, YouTubers, online designers that uh, largely speak about logo design. There are quite high-profile designers that have made logo design their core product or content it, contentified it. They've created community groups and podcasts and books and all these kind of things solely around logo design. But I'm sure for a lot of people, their ambitions are, are greater, uh, that they would like to explore these other different multi-century communicative techniques and positioning and strategy to fold that into their services is there any advice you could give give those people how they can transition uh, from from logo design into corporate identity uh, for me when i started i was just designing designing logos and a couple of applications um, and i did that so often that kind of process of always applying a logo to something i never I never just designed the logo. That's never been a thing I've done in my career because of, uh, basically, basically because of the place that I started, the company that I started for. They never just did logos; they did everything else too. Um, but back then, I wouldn't have called myself a, a corporate, uh, corporate identity designer or an identity or, or whatever the wording is you want to use. I wouldn't have used that. Over time, for me, it's developed naturally as my interests in psychology and branding and marketing and following certain people who think like that too. Seth Godin's a, a big influencer on me. Um, reading a ton of marketing books, even though most of them are wrong. And that is a fact. That is a dogmatic fact there, by the way. Um, uh, I'm, I'm glad you used the word fact and not truth because <laughs> truth is a philosophical discussion. Facts, uh, facts are what this show are about, I think. <laughs> oh, fact, in fact, facts are, as we've learned from politics, actually, uh, <laughs> are very fluid. So you mean your fact? <laughs> yeah, yeah, my personal fact. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of, I transitioned into it very naturally. It wasn't, a, it wasn't even a thing that I ever really knew that I wanted to do. Logo design was never a big part of my career for for probably eight years or something like that. It wasn't a big part of my career. Now it's the thing I get the most enjoyment out of and it's uh, the thing that I find the most rewarding part of it. Just as you as you mature and you want to have these conversations with clients like we were discussing earlier, those are the things that really excite me. Developing the presentations and, and, and saying to them, this is where you are now and this is where we want to transition to. In terms of actually developing that skill, uh, the thing that I've done, and I, I don't know if this is the most efficient way of doing it, um, I, I'd, uh, f from the way that I've done it, I don't want to say go on, go on skill, don't go on Skillshare and don't follow these corporate identity courses and things like that. 
I think you should, but it only gives you one small part of the picture. It gives you the technical aspect of the picture, developing the uh, how to develop a corporate identity. And that is just a set of things, basically a set of deliverables that you can learn how to deliver. But the other stuff that you need to understand underneath it is the marketing, is 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 the branding and the psychology and things like that. And to understand those, you have to read far and wide. You've got to read a, a lot of different books and that's something that I've just always done. I've just always been very interested in body language and semiotics and all kinds of stuff. So it was a natural progression for me, but I do think you've got to, first of all, follow the people who are doing the thing that you want to do. That's what I always did. Johnson Banks has always been a massive inspiration for me, still is to this day. Um, the, The book that they've got I forgot what it's called now is it called branding the book on branding or something it's a big thick fat book uh that Michael Johnson wrote that's a fantastic book um so I've, I've read you need to find the key people who are in your industry Johnson Banks is one for me Michael Beirut is another one Paul Shear um Pentagram basically Wolf Ollins although I find sometimes Wolf Ollins miss the mark with some things but they're always interesting to look at and the the stuff that they've managed to get through to clients and get out in the public and a lot of this stuff has been very divisive I think it's a massive inspiration so I've always looked at these very high level key people and and actually read the thoughts that they've said about the branding that they've done Michael Johnson's really good at that he, he kept up I think he still keeps the blog or I've not read it for a while he used to write a lot of blog posts about the the meaning behind the brands which was sometimes a thousand to two thousand words about how they came up with the idea and how it developed that kind of thinking's always helped me because it's understanding the thinking underneath the identity as we discussed the logo is the easy bit and i'd argue that the uh, the the corp the corporate identity development and the branding guidelines is the easy bit it's it's the technical skills but it's the the soft skills the negotiation and the understanding of the psychology that's hard to develop where you've got to read a lot of books and i think that it's it's also that um for me that that the scariest part was the um having to have the conversation about um and this came from from initially doing logo design is that conversation about what it is that that they stand for, what what it is that they um, want to, uh, how how they want to sort of impact on the world, what it is that they they envision for the future, and how are they going to get there? And finding that they're not actually even thinking about any of those things. It's um, I've created a product um, that I believe people will like, but that's it, right? And and you think well that's that's not really enough. Um, that that's not really how people connect with things anymore. Um, it's not about product benefits that sell. Um, it, it's the intangibles, right? Um, it's about community. Um, it's about uh, how how you how you want to change the world for the better, or all these kind of things, whatever. Um, And it's only through having that conversation that you realize that you're not only going to have to design something for them, but you're going to have to um, make sense of what it is 
or bring clarity to their product offering or service and educate them and hold the hand and that that takes a lot of confidence right to to have that conversation to actually start writing down um brand statements or positioning statements and then to work on how you're going to bring that to life and where you're going to spend the client's money are you going to say that i'm not going to give myself the money to do the logo i'm going to actually give the money a portion of the money over to logo design uh, to website design or a, a copywriter and that becomes quite scary because you 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 almost have have to sell like intangible things whereas before i was selling yeah. a tangible thing like a logo and, and that takes time and experience and um a capacity to listen and make sense of somebody else's ideas and um that takes time and that takes a lot of learning a lot of reading and then the, the thing that goes back to the point I made earlier is that you can read everything you can from lots of different people, but it's up to you to decide what you believe in and then do it and then to continually iterate and learn from it. It's you only get better and the world only gets better by taking what has happened in the past and um, iterating on it. And it helps to have a vision of what, your have a vision of what you think is a better future rather than a worse future right yeah I, I think it's the it's the transition from um a, a builder or an engineer to a consultant i never understood that transition and i never understood the distinction until probably even maybe a year ago even maybe a little bit less than that it's only been in in the last year maybe the last yeah probably year or six months where I have started having the consultancy conversations with clients not selling them consultancy I don't say this is a consultancy project but I will ask them consultancy type questions I'll be asking them questions I won't be telling them things I'll I'll be bringing them along and making them understand things rather than me saying that this is right and trying to understand their business in a lot deeper of a way and as a result of that they turn around and ask you for for answers and uh, on things that you don't feel qualified to answer and um, but ah uh, uh, yeah that and this that's the job right is that sometimes you're just uh, in order to go forward you're saying yes to things that you've never done and you're thinking i am so in the deep end and there and and you're in their office and you might they might have flown you over from from wherever you live to to another country and they put you up and you're there in the office and i've had this and they're asking you questions and in my head i'm thinking i have no idea but but you did though didn't you you did know the idea i well you you kind of do it on the fly uh, because you've done a lot of different things and but the thing is that you're not just pulling it out of your ass that it's you you're you're sweating and you're stressed and the partner meeting is there and they're firing questions at you but when you're saying things you know that you're not bullshitting uh even though you're kind of making it up on the fly um 
because you've got no choice because they're paying you for answers or for ideas. Um, and that's when you start to learn really, really quickly um, what you know and what you don't know and what you need to do better next time. Um, and, the, and there's also the thing of a bit of humility, right, is that sometimes it's actually okay to say, I don't know, but I will find out the answer 